Hello and welcome to another fabulous episode of your favorite podcast, The Brothers F. Today we are discussing a short story that almost everyone has read. Almost everyone except for a certain individual who decided that we ought to read the short story and is currently reading the short story as we record. So that short story is the Shirley Jackson, and as we speak in real time, Wampi is doing the reading. Oh, friend, I was hoping you weren't going to say, and then it could kind of be a slow reveal as we discuss, and the audience hears one new brother and one new brother. Who is it? You know, and then at, at least mm. at least we know he he did the reading this time around. At least we know he's doing it. That's yeah. yeah. That's better than not having done the reading, doing the reading. In class, is, I guess it's better, right? Also, I love this because um, there's so many, I'm, I, they're not formulated yet in my head, but there are so many lottery-based jokes that you could make about the kind of collective pressure we're putting on Fumbago right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. Um, do you guys know who uh, Rene Girard is? He's a philosopher, right? He is, is the a- guy Peter Thiel super into? Yes, yes, he is. He's, he's, uh, he's a philosopher beloved by uh, a billionaire weirdo Peter Thiel, and his uh, like one of the major themes of his philosophy is scapegoats, which is the perfect. Uh... By the way, and, and you know what? I will just cop to the fact that I have never actually read any Rene Girard. I just know he's like. I've I've read about Rene Girard, and I know that his deal is that he's interested in scapegoats. Do you all know where that nah, uh, good enough. expression comes from? Fran, you are a true intellectual. I want to say that before we move forward. Can, can I can I take a stab at where it may come from? Well, either you know, or you don't. Go ahead. Well, I th- I think I may know. Um, is it? Well, this is this is a long shot, but uh. My high school science teacher, maybe it was when I was middle school or high school, he told me how um, when he um, basically he lived, I think, close to some rural area and goats were an invasive species, not really invasive, but there were no natural predators. They were introduced there unnaturally. And so they were completely overpopulated and would decimate all the um, grass and everything. So they would put a tracking device on one of the goats and have the goat lead, you know, they would track the goat until it landed on the herd. And then they would helicopter over all the goats and machine gun all the goats underneath. um, (laughs) So that's not the scapegoat. The word for that, they invented it is actually the Judas goat. goat. (laughs) is so brutal. (laughs) So they would, yeah, they take this goat, they track, they put a little tag on them and they have the goat betray all his friends and family very mean so the way i, I remember think, it, let me guess the way i What's remember up? it is they would spray paint something on the back of the goat and then they would fly over also this was in hawaii if our listeners are confused about how goats could be an invasive species i think it's many islands i think the judas goat specifically is maybe it's hawaii too i don't know um but if i can take a stab as well at the scapegoat thing i always thought it was like sort of a ritual expiation of sins in like judaism is they would take a goat and then you would transfer your sins onto the goat and then they would slaughter the goat in the temple and that would like atone for your sins 
Yeah, it's in the Bible. There, there would be. I haven't read all the Bible. You would take, you would take in Mutavai. You would take on the sins of uh, the sins of of the people, and they would kill the goat. So, with that, I think we've kind of given away the punchline. <laughs> I want to Is say, that really what's going on here? I want to say it seems like a fair deal, unless you're the goat. Sorry to make the obvious point, but uh, <laughs> that's my well, yeah. Favorite. I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, like I don't know, like running sweatshops is a great deal if you're like the consumer or the employer, not like the people in the sweatshops. Oh, um, wow. sweatshops. Okay, if you know what side of the deal to land on. Exactly, exactly. Francisco, the moral, yeah, the moral. Great yeah. lending, great for the great for the lenders, not so great for the uh, borrowers. Okay, we could do this all day. I know. We're getting we're getting distracted. Um, the story. We of course. I, I'm not a. What what's up? Oh, go ahead, Andrew. I didn't want to cut off. Oh, Wait, no. I'm I'm pretty I'm, I don't know, I'm really tired today. It was really demoralizing. I I had a I had a very relaxing day lined up. It was so good. I was gonna just get my work done in the morning, which I did. I was free at noon, and then I decided that I needed to I needed to bake some cupcakes because I'm in a, like a baking exchange. It's one of these like COVID permitted uh, social events. So I decided to bake some cupcakes, and it ended up being like really really aggressively tiring like i i don't know what it was like yesterday or the day before i i worked out literally um and i like i did some pull-ups i did some push-ups and i was feeling like i was doing a pretty good job and then i like checked my watch and my heart rate was like at 80 or something i was like oh i guess i'm not working that hard um and then today just making the cupcakes and like whipping all like the buttercream and the frosting all these things like my heart rate was at like 120. I was sweating. Like my watch buzz that I hit my fitness goal for the day was <laughs> quite something. Um, like I don't know. Apparently that's a bit of a workout. That's but crazy. I was on my feet for like five hours trying to get those done. I didn't even do them. I'm pretty pretty terrible job. So I'm just I'm just so beat. That's kind of awesome. I want to say this fits into um, this fits into. Uh, a general philosophy of mine, which is that like a low level of steady activity over the course of several hours beats like intensity, which I realize is totally contrary to like a lot of, a lot of science and conventional wisdom. Uh, but I don't mean it's it in terms of like the effect or the output. I just mean it feels better. Like if I do some gardening or something or some yard work, I feel really tired in a good way at the end of that day. Uh, and the same is actually true in my intellectual work I found. like. I want to work with intensity, but it, but but I've had this like big project to do for school, and uh, this there's this like document that was written up a long time ago because this is a long-standing project, and this is like a kind of a uh, an infamous project maybe. And this professor wrote uh, uh, his advice for for getting this project done was you have to just do your daily your daily. Your daily, your daily portion each day, no matter what. Doesn't matter if you have tickets to the opera. Doesn't matter if like some disaster happens. Just do your daily piece each day. And, and this is the key part. Don't do anything more than that. Because if you do more than that, then you're going to take the next day off as a break. 
so that's what I've been doing. And I'm on day like 70 or something, and it's coming along uh, pretty nicely. So like a low level of steady engagement is kind of a nice approach. Okay. I, I just have to speak up. You, you just mentioned math, um, gardening, and opera in the same strain of thought. We're going to get made fun of. I just, I'm going to have to accept that. <laughs> we are now officially in highbrow territory. I am who Ooh. I am. And if I need to be the scapegoat, I will be the scapegoat. Put all your, <laughs> your highbrow nice on me and, and then throw me off the cliff. Do whatever. Anyway. Sure. I was kind of hoping that Juanpi would finish the story finally um, before we dive in. No, I am done with it. Juanpi has finished oh. the story. It's oh, a good Maybe Juanpi. a round of applause. He finally did the reading. Yeah, so proud. Bobby flew today, so he's kind of he's kind of tired. But uh, uh, you can okay. do on planes. You can read. <laughs> oh. You can download a physical. You can download the story. There's got to be PDFs. No, no, no. Because um, because um, the plane, the Wi-Fi only works like for um. Like, you have to pay $8 to do anything but text or watch their movies. Well, yeah, they're like movies that they allow you to watch. Fucking, you should have told me that I could have texted you The Lottery by Shirley Jackson in, like, little bite-sized chunks. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been awesome. (laughs) It's, like, not long. I mean, that would be ridiculous. But if you were to do it, it might be possible because it's not not a long story. It's certainly more possible for this story than to be honest. If you gave me the choice between texting Quampy the lottery in bite sized chunks and being stoned to death, I think I might go with the latter. <laughs> and that is a strong statement, and it also it also explains to me so much about your texting record. Wow. Mm. <laughs> what well, I'm pretty good about texting back. No, you're a good texter. You know, actually, I, I made a friend this year who who has an Android phone. And because the only oh, God, people with Android not, phones that I texted so on a regular basis, what's that, friend? They suck so bad. I just want to go back to an iPhone so much. <laughs> but here's the thing is I, the only people I texted with an Android were Francisco and a friend of mine from college, both of whom are terrible at texting back. So I sort of internalized that Android phones are like inherently just like, like bad at receiving texts or slow or something like that. It takes like four hours for people to get your texts. And finally I met this new kid who would like text me back live in the moment. I was like, Oh my God, of course. And it's, it's actually like text messages. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's brand for you. So, you know, there's, there's not, there's not much to the story. You, you start out. And there's this mysterious lottery that they're doing in this village. And there's various people, uh, you know, picking uh, white slips of paper out of a black box. And what you what you find out at the very end is they're picking someone to die. They're picking someone to be stoned to death by her friends and loved ones and neighbors. And, and I believe her husband is the one who rips the paper away from her and shows the village that she's got the black mark and she's the one who has to die. And they give the pebbles to her son so he can participate like real sicko shit. Um, and, and it was, uh, you know, it, look, in today's age of Quentin Tarantino movies, this doesn't really register so much, but it was a big deal. When it came out, it was a big deal. She got a lot of hate mail. 
Yeah, people people didn't like it. I mean, like, what what are you saying about America? What are you saying about you know the, the you know real Americans who live in small towns? When you write, mm, it, you write about them, uh, stoning one of their friends and neighbors to death for no reason at all, just because it's tradition, right? It's very it's a very anti conservative book. Yeah, so honestly, like the, I mean, I don't know how it was received at the time, but for my part, I, I knew the ending already. I read this book back, or this story back in like eighth grade for English class. Um, and just knowing the ending sort of gave the whole story a very eerie quality uh, as a sort of horror type, like slow build up suspense of suspense that was pretty, pretty cool, actually, because there's all these like little hints thrown in there and you sort of imagine it theatrically, like, like music building up and like sort of people getting more and more stressed out until finally you hit the moment where someone gets stoned to death. Um, I think it's, it's very well written. Yeah. Andrew, I agree with that. Actually. It was, I, I was curious. Oh, is the story going to be ruined because I know the ending, but actually I agree. It was the opposite. I was actually nervous from the first word of the story. I was nervous the entire time. And that nervousness and that tension, I would say even, even like a knot in my stomach, was building as I read the story, so it was it was super super powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, um, I mean, I, I did read in eighth grade, um, and then you know I kind of remembered what the ending was, but like once I started reading it, it came back to me pretty quickly, and I mean it was definitely well written, but it was not as suspenseful as i remember it for me personally just because when i know the ending of something i just kind of i already know it and so for me it uh but it was it was what was pretty neat for me more than like just the build-up was how you know like oh the lottery that's that sounds familiar i definitely remember reading that but i kind of remember what it was about and i got like four paragraphs in and i remembered exactly how the story went and who did what and so i think that really speaks to the just the way Shirley Jackson goes about this. Uh, I, I don't I thought that was a pretty cool experience. Probably pretty personal. I'm not sure if everyone would have experienced the same thing, but I thought it was Yeah, it's funny. Cool. Some people really get ticked off by spoilers. Um, like, like uh, I don't know, Avengers. Remember Avengers Endgame? It was a big deal that Spider-Man dies. Spoiler, right? Spider-Man dies. Um and I remember I was I was tutoring these kids uh, like at like th- this was back when I was in college, um, and the kids thought they were going to be super mean to me and like spoil Avengers so like ha Spider Man dies Iron Man dies or something I don't know which Avengers this is, um, and I was like this doesn't bother me at all but some of some of my other friends were super shaken up because like that to them ruins the experience for my part as like I don't really care I can still enjoy things even if I kind of know the ending. Um, but yeah, so diving back into the story, you sort of get the small town vibe. People are talking about farming and tractors, um, and you hear a little bit about some of the characters. There's sort of like the, I won't call it, he's not the mayor proper, but he's kind of like the go-getter of the town. And he plans all the, the social events. The what? Sorry, the official of the lottery. There we go. The official of the lottery. And he also plans like the, the, the square dance every fall or something stuff like that so he's there you have the old man of the town who's 77 and he uh or has been through 77 lotteries i forget exactly how old he is specifically 
and he's the one who's grumbling about tradition and how the way things used to be and how they're getting worse all the time. You have other farmers and farmers' wives. Um, it starts off with like all sorts of family details, like, oh, you know, I was like doing the dishes and I forgot that it was the day I had to go do the lottery. Um, so yeah, starts off real small town America, really cool. Um, and then it has the build up suspense and they bring out the box. Everyone grabs a box, or a, a piece of paper from the box. And then who is it? Mr. Hutchinson? Was that his name? Yep. Mr. Hutchinson pulls out the black dot, which means Mr. Hutchinson's family is going to be scrutinized this year, I guess. I don't know if that's exactly the right word. So then all of his family members then take, do the lottery by themselves. At this point, Mr. Hutchinson's wife is sort of uh, putting up a big fuss. She's like, it wasn't fair. You didn't give him a chance. This isn't right. We need to do it again. But Mr. Hutchinson sort of stoically gets his family together and they pull from the box again. And at this point, everyone takes out their slip. And Mr. Hutchinson's kid, it, like his boy, pulls it out. It's a blank slip, so he's safe. His daughter pulls it out, a blank slip. She's safe. All her friends screech with the lights. It's like, oh, she's safe. She's okay. Uh, he pulls out his slip. He's blank. He's okay. His, like, like toddler son... Like, they spry it out of his hands, he's safe. And everyone turns to Tessie, or whatever her name is, the wife. And she starts screeching even more. And they pry it out of her hands, and they see a black dot. So she is the one that they're going to stone this year. So it's pretty yeah. grim. It's awful. Thank you thank you for fleshing out the synopsis, Andrew, because I, uh, I think that covered a lot of, like, what I felt was so, like, creepy about it. I think... One thing I wanted to ask you guys, are these like normal details? Are the people in the town faking it a little bit? Or are they really this comfortable with the ritual? Because it seems like there's 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 little murmurs of discomfort that spread through. Like somebody says, oh, some of the towns are not doing lotteries anymore. And oh, they stopped the lottery a long time ago. And then someone else says, oh, if you stop the lottery, you won't get a good harvest. You know, those people are crazy. These young folks with their new ideas. So there's a little bit of tension, like maybe we should stop the lottery. But the striking thing about the whole thing is just how normal it is. As you say, people, oh, I just was running late because I was doing the ditches. I'm like, oh, run and get your father. Make sure he doesn't miss it. And all these basic things that people are sort of catching up with each other and sort of still wiping their hands on their aprons. And then oh. all of a sudden they stone someone. So are they faking it or no? What I thought was tricky um, for me was the fact that it starts off with the kids gathering up stones and I thought nothing of it. Until, like, you got to the end. That was just, like, too much. Yeah, yeah, that's a grim detail. And yeah. that's a detail which sort of heightens the suspense if you if you know the ending already. Juan, um, okay. to that question, I think definitely there is some level of discomfort. Um, again, there's the people talking about how, oh, over in the other North Town, they stopped doing the lottery this year. or um, And, oh, there was one other example, but it's it's it slipped my mind. Dang. Um, but... A sort of key feature here is that since it's only one member of the 300-person town that has to get stoned every year, that everybody else sort of uncomfortably goes along with it, and they're, they'd rather not rock the boat and just go on with tradition. Yeah, I, I thought that was uh, interesting, because I was, I was trying to think what, like, uh, this really was about, and, like, uh, you know, I, because... 
Francisco, when you mentioned your comment about how people got at, at first, like I, you know, I read it. it. It's it's a it's a pretty interesting read. It's definitely like a very quick read too, um, and you know, it's full of suspense and everything. But um, I'm just curious why so many people would have been mad at Shirley Jackson for writing this because it, it maybe there was some veiled critique that I just didn't pick up on. But for me, I just um, you know, there was obviously some obvious themes in it. Um, you know, like that of the scapegoat. Um, and then Andres, how you mentioned like people kind of like uh, going on with traditions uh, as long, and just being thankful that they weren't the one chosen and just going along with it because it's a 300 person town and only one person gets, uh, you know, chosen. But um, friend, not to call you out, I'm just curious why um, people, why it was just not received, uh, received so well. Well, because that, that first of all, people, this came out in the 1940s and people's sensibilities weren't as uh, cauterized as they are now, right? This short, this, this story would have been a lot more shocking, I think, back, back in the day than it is just today. I mean, today we can watch movies or play video games with violence that makes lottery, the lottery look like a, uh, you know, uh, another chapter from the Hardy Boys. But, you know, I think back then it was more shocking. But also, you know, the town is like, it's like a Norman Rockwell painting. And yeah, that's the, a good way of putting it. The folks who support the lottery are essentially conservative people, right? They're conservatives. The, the lottery should stay because that's the way it's always been done. And the young people are wrong to want to change things. If the story had been written in 2015, they would have been bashing millennials. Um, so basically, it's a critique of the older generation. It's a critique of conservatism. It's a it's a critique of Americana, of these small towns that people consider to be core to American identity, uh, and and it's an insult to these people, right? It's it's saying that at the heart of these towns there are people who would be willing to go along with something like this if it just happened to be a tradition. Yeah, I think that's well put. I, I guess I personally, you know, having read it, maybe it's just at a different time, but like, I, I don't see that because their traditions weren't stony people, you know, their traditions were, you know, they had traditions centered on other things, but they didn't do this. And so it's like, um, I'm curious why people would have gotten so upset about that because, you know, it's, yeah, dude, I, yes, I, 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 I acknowledge it. I don't know what to tell you, man. They got upset. Yeah, that's just the way. It is. I acknowledge it's a critique, but it's—I don't think it's a particularly good critique. I—I I, I don't think people were like because their traditions weren't stony people. They had other traditions that were usually pretty hard. Yeah, but I guess the point is that you—you you can have traditions that maybe aren't as extreme as stoning somebody, but are still harm, harmful on some level, and they're sort of maintained out of a sense of duty, duty or tradition. Um. And I don't know, especially when you're not the one who gets impacted, it's easy to go with flow. Um, yeah, actually, man, this is the 1940s. A lot of messed up stuff going on in America. Yeah, right? it's true, There's, right? I mean, this is... You know, not not letting Jews in during World War II, uh, Jim Crow, you know. There's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of uh, bad juju. That's out true. There Deeply in, bad traditions going on. 
You know what? Now that you just reminded me, it was written in the 1940s. <laughs> Never mind. I don't know why I thought 1980s. So, my bad. <laughs> yeah. So to drive this point home that like we don't feel the urge to change traditions when we're not the one who gets dinged by them. Uh, our English prof back in eighth grade, I think when Carlos and Diego had had him too, but maybe not. He uh, he assigned the lottery for homework. And the next day he came in and he came in late and everybody was sort of chatting and stuff. And he came, he stomped in really aggressive in a terrible mood. Everybody sort of quieted down. Um, and you could tell he was really just having a bad day and you didn't want to cross him. And one kid let out a nervous laugh and he immediately goes, what was that? You got detention. That's it. You're, you got detention. I don't want to hear that. And everybody's just like, oh, dang. Um, wow. And he's shocked. He's like, oh my gosh, what did I do? This is terrible. And then some other guys like, wow, sort of whispering about it. And then the teacher says, what, what are you talking about? Okay. You know what? Fine. Uh, first kid, you don't have detention anymore. The next kid, you have it now. Um, and he did that like five or six times before people started to catch on. It's like, oh, he's making a point here. And then the, 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 the chiste we say in Spanish, it sort of broke. Uh, and he was like, okay, guys, you get what I'm going for is like injustice. If it doesn't affect you is very easy to let slide. Um, and that she, she was trying to make the point that not exclusively this point, but, but perhaps also this point within other larger themes of the story that somebody has to sort of, uh, stand up against the tradition and, and like resist it, even if they're not the one who's going to be harmed by it. Yeah. I also want to make a point that is maybe moving away from the social and more into the aesthetic. Um, but I think there's something kind of grotesque about the story. And I realize that, that, that uh, I've brought up this word in past podcasts and it's a weird word, but I, but I want to stand by it. There's something grotesque about the story because of this juxtaposition of almost the ugliest thing you can imagine with these very picturesque and beautiful details. Brian, I liked a lot what you said about the Norman Rockwell uh, story. And, or, or this town is like a Norman Rockwell painting. And uh, I think there's a lot to that. And there's just so many little details that are, that are crammed in there. Like, I think we mentioned this, but one of the guys, he has this saying, he's like, oh, lottery in June, corn will be in soon or something. You know, it's just like, oh, one of those cheery things, like, like uh, knee high by July or something. <laughs> That's what they say about the corn, you know? And it's a small town and there's these nice families and the girls are playing and the boys are gathering stones and they're preventing the other boys from stealing the stones. So there's so many picturesque details. And then they give the boy Davy a stone so that he can throw it at his mother. So it just really shocks you. I think that's what's most upsetting to me about the story is less like the social themes, although that definitely gets to me. But the most upsetting thing to me is, I think, just that uh, juxtaposition, like how, yeah, maybe on some level, I guess it is social, how we could all get that familiar and be that pleasant about something that evil. Yeah, true. Uh, for all I talked about the social stuff, right? Like, that's not why I enjoyed this story or, like, was impacted reading it, right? Like, if you talk about those things, I'll sort of nod along and, and I'll be a little bored, right? I mean, this, these aren't, like... It's not exactly exciting to talk about these things, even if it's true. But <laughs> the word you picked is a good one, Wunsch. Grotesque, right? It's a grotesque story, um, and it, it sucks you in. 
I do have to say though, if like um, like what you were saying, um, like they're, they're just fine with it. But I mean, like if you've grown up with it all your life and your parents grew up with it their lives and their parents grew up with it, um, I don't know. Maybe it's the only thing you've ever known. Maybe it doesn't seem wrong to you. I don't know. That's true. I think we're called to we're called to ask that question of ourselves by the story. Here's a question for you guys. What modern day condition, tradition, habit, way of being will be looked back on by future generations with lottery-esque horror? This is a, this is a tough question, friend. Wait, modern day you said? Did you say modern day or just historical? No, modern day. What modern day thing? Okay. What, what, what's so here's an idea like... of one. Um, I mean, there, there are many that you could think of. Uh, but here's one in particular, which depends on your politics, you might say, is meat eating, right? So if you imagine a future, it, maybe in the next 50 years, we finally solve the problem of how to grow meat in the lab very easily. Um then we will quickly get used to growing meat in a lab. I'm sure if you give it another 50 years, it'll be more efficient to grow meat in a lab. And even though right now I'm very comfortable eating meat, maybe in 200 years, they'll be like, oh my God, they used to kill goats and eat them for barbacoa. Like, oh my goodness, can you imagine doing something that barbaric? Um, so there's one. I'm sure people That's can think of more. Though. People have been doing that since the dawn of creation. So I doubt over the course of 200 to 300 years. That's right. Maybe not 200 or 300. But if the technology progresses fast enough, right, and it becomes super easy to just, like, grow your meat in the lab and if the flavor is there, you could imagine this replacing people's normal dietary habits of, of like, raising a cow. Because, like, if you could – so, like, raising a cow to grow meat is – somewhat inefficient yeah, in terms of turning calories into beef right if you could sort of that's, skip the that's middle different than meat eating though like because let me put it this way yeah right no one i shouldn't say this blank but like generally speaking no one in the u.s has to go hunt their food to go get meat but people do it anyway because it's just by the way one of my nearest resolutions but neither here nor there people do it anyway because there's something primal about it well for a variety of reasons like there's something primal about it there's something nice about being able to get your own meat you know where it's coming from um i don't know it's, it's something instinctual and it's something that um i think just people are naturally drawn to yeah and so that's a really good point i, I, I don't i see where you're going i see where you're going but i don't think anyone will look at it like how could they because I mean, it was, it's, it's how people had to survive, right? No, you're, so, you're, that's totally fair. And like, people will still be hunting, even if meat becomes very cheap and like easily growable in a Petri dish. Um, but I think people's, okay, people's stomachs sort of vote first and people's stomachs vote for the flavor of meat. So that's settled. Um, people's wallets vote second. So if lab grown meat becomes cheaper, just by virtue of the fact that you don't have to grow a whole cow and make it live and breathe and walk. You just have to grow a little slab of meat on the dish. If that makes it cheaper, then people will always buy lab-grown meat just because it's cheaper. And you let that settle for a couple of decades. You could imagine a lot more people being very passionate vegetarians 
saying like it's inhumane it's so cruel we should never ever ever kill animals to eat them right that's that's fair enough even though but you're totally right it would never we can find a better i think we can find a better one i think we need to i think we need to find a better one well, wait, I think so. one is that um one is that I had the I had the grow meat I had the meat cell culture idea a few days ago and I totally thought I was the first one to have it. Of course, like there are about like a million companies trying to do that, but um, that was a big disappointment. It's already in Singapore. You can already eat it in I Singapore. Know. It's already been. But two, well, I, they don't really grow. They don't really grow cells. Watch what they do is they like take plant proteins and they mix them up with lab grown heme from from like transfected yeast. Um, so it's. The, the straight up cells, I think they've done it experimentally and one burger costed like $300,000 because they grew it from like cow stem cells. Yeah. So the technology is emphatically not there right now, oh, but so it might be in like a hundred years. The first human genome, which happened in what, 2003, that cost I think $3 billion and now it costs like $1,000. So that's what? That's like a 10 to the books. Yeah, you can't necessarily you can't necessarily extrapolate that because the human genome thing, the big the big advances were mechanization of the process and then computational advances, right? Uh, this may not necessarily be like reducible to computer issues, right? I think there's some. Maybe it is. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, the second thing I want to say, though, it's interesting because you said uh, killing animals. That's been happening since for as long as humans have been around. But I would say stoning people has also been around for like probably most of, maybe not most of human history, but like, it's definitely an ancient thing. It seems like almost as old as it gets in terms of uh, capital punishment. So true, but meat eating was essential for survival. Um, whereas stony people wasn't. And it was, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing really wrong with, you know, killing an animal to let your family live. There's obviously something intrinsically wrong with, you know, stoning someone, you know, and I get in a lot of these cultures, you know, this is kind of like a blanket statement. And some of these cultures, they would just stone people because they didn't like them or they had done something dishonorable. But in other ones, you know, um, uh, they would do so in response to a wrong act, which, you know, today we would probably frown upon. But back then, you know, when they didn't have a legal system. They didn't have law. Well, they had a legal system. Depends on the civilization here. But, you know, they didn't have law enforcement. They didn't have the civilizations that we live by, right? Like, I don't want to say it was necessary, but they had to have rules that were if you crossed the line somewhere, you were met with a response. So although stoning existed, and again, this varied from culture to culture, right? Like you had cultures that would, you know, do human sacrifices. And, you know, so this is a very black state. But some cultures just... You know, there's a famous uh, Babylonian code, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That was, you could in many ways argue that that's wrong, but that was just a way that a code they came up with to um, defend themselves, right? To Because they had, they lived in such different conditions. Yeah, and it's an interesting tension, um, right? Because, I mean, like, there was, an, there was a German punishment in like the 17th century, I don't know, 16th, 17th century. I'm sure it was around for much longer before. Uh, and I don't know what, I, I, it was called like Radom or something, Radom. Um, and the gist of it was they would break every major bone in the person's body, like their forearms, arms, their shins and legs, and then like, like put them, like weave the limbs through a wheel, a cartwheel, and then raise it into the sky and expose the person, let them die of thirst over the next three days, right? 
immensely brutal, objectively wrong, but that was their way of sort of enforcing society. And that was maybe their method. And there were many other methods all over the place and many varieties of torture. Um, and the we can say pretty confidently that that is a objectively immoral act. And at the same time, societies all over the place ended up relying on these objectively immoral, ridiculously barbaric acts as a way to make their society function. Um, so there is a really interesting tension there of, you know, without these aggressive tortures as a means of threat of enforcing order in the society, maybe these societies would have had a lot of trouble existing with, with the cohesiveness they did have. Um, but with them, you're sort of yeah, relying. And that's exactly yeah. the point. Yeah. Like it, it, it didn't make it right, but in a way I do kind of, I, and we're, again, we're talking about society, but like these are obviously civilizations that have different practices, but in a way they had to establish this because living in a civilized society then was so much harder than it is today. Like they had to, um, you know, survival in and of itself was just ridiculously hard. And so they, they had to establish these brutal moral codes to kind of, um, I guess, establish order. But uh, I guess we got a little off track here. <laughs> this is very um, grim. But I, I don't know. Anyone, anyone have any other practices that may be, um, you know, the lottery um, of our time, you know, 200 years from now when they look back? At what we do um i uh i don't know maybe uh maybe like uh i just i i think actually maybe our current relationship with technology yes that i was actually um thinking about that myself but didn't know how uh well received that would be but um True. If you uh, if you look at the Silicon Valley did, guys, because, like all of them restrict their kids' access to the technology really aggressively, while at the same time pouring technology onto everybody else's kids. So maybe there will be a bit of a backlash in the next couple decades. It was interesting because Pril and I actually went out to dinner uh, today, um, because uh, well. Ended up having some free time I never expected to have. So, um, and uh, we were talking and then she went to go to the bathroom. And so I looked around kind of the restaurant-ish area. It's, it's this really cool place, like classic Italian place. Been around for over 40 years, you know. Owner's very old school. He was like born in Italy, but came here as a kid. And, you know, he... He does all, he's in the kitchen, the owner himself, you know, cooking every day. Pretty cool place. Cash only, you know, the classic. And I look around and literally everyone I could see in my vision either was looking at their phone or had their phone on the table. And I was like, and these people are people in groups, right? Like no one was eating dinner alone. And I, I don't know. So it, it kind of like, um, it really put things into perspective for me, not perspective, but it, I don't want to sound preachy, but like, it really shocked me. Like, cause, uh, what I decided to do that day purposefully, uh, today, um, was, uh, I actually purposefully, like it, it's, it was raining where I live and I hung up my jacket. Like they have a little coat rack 
and I put my phone in my jacket because I'm like, I don't want this anywhere near me. I've, I've had some stressful days at work, so I needed to put it away anyway. Um, and, uh, I, I, um, like I, I purposely put it away. She goes to the bathroom and I look around and literally everyone is either on their phone or I can visibly see they have their phone next to them. I really think that's unhealthy. I really think like these are people that were, there were some people having a ladies night. There were like these three guys who were together. There were, um, you know, this, this older couple together, even the older couple, they all had phones with them. Um, that said, for all my ability to recognize that phones are kind of evil on some level, I'm still pretty addicted to my phone. I don't know about the rest of y'all. Yeah, same. I'm working on it, but it's tough. No, there's a lot of smart people whose job is, like their 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 day job is to get us to use our phones more. And they're very good at their job. No, that that's 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 right. I mean, I was thinking more about how the phone changes your relationship to your employer. Oh, okay. So it used Elaborate. to be you could only be accessible at the office, right? You had a phone, so if they wanted to get in touch with you, maybe they could call your home phone, but otherwise you were home. And you know, I used to have a job where I'd get emails on Christmas Day that I was supposed to respond to. So that's not possible without smartphones, I, I you know, and I, I think uh, I, th- I think we're all enslaved to them because you're not competitive without them. But on the other hand, like it's a prisoner's dilemma situation. Like we'd collectively all be better off if we decided to not use the phone. But you know the. the the one person who uses it, it's going to be at such a competitive advantage that there's, there's no, uh, there's no way that we could ever actually get to the optimal situation. Yeah. I think those are two good angles. One, like are the phones actually getting in the way of us connecting with each other, which I feel like it, I, I would almost be hard pressed to procure a reasonable person who would argue, no phones are not on some level getting in the way. Uh, the other angle yeah, phones are crazy, making work crazy. The third angle for me is just the mental health angle. I feel like uh, we kind of just plunged into this, and there's no question it's a huge, it's a huge factor in people's mental health. They spend four hours a day on the phone, especially young people who grew up with it. And uh, I feel like tech companies—they uh, not to sound too, you know, too bitter here—but it seems like they're largely going to get off scot-free, right? And this is really a crisis in in the mental health of especially young people. Um, I don't think that's right. You know, they made a lot of money and, and, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that, that strikes me as maybe something we could look back on and say, we really goofed in a pretty major way. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's fair enough. Uh, do you want to, uh, let's see, maybe we can land this thing on a less somber note. Maybe we can, uh, segue into something a little more lighthearted, something banter related, or maybe who's going to pick the next story. Let's, let's do that. Which I believe is you. Yeah, it is me. All right, so I think I'm up for next week's story. Um, To be honest, I don't read a lot of short stories, so I sort of bounced around trying to find authors and was sort of Googling, like, author short story, trying to find something. Um, And I landed on Toni Morrison. I Googled Toni Morrison short story. It looks like she did write something. 
um, what is it called? Let me let me pull it up again. Um, so I she wrote something called recitatif. I think it's called. Maybe it's a French word. Wants you know. That is a word from French. It's also a term in uh, opera. Actually, funnily enough, opera's back. Recitatif ah. when you're uh, or in like or in like a cantata or something like religious choral music. When someone is uh, is singing solo, but it's not really like singing. It's kind of like when the composer needs to get through a bunch of material. So they kind of talk like this and they move their voice around, but they're not really singing. They're kind of just moving the plot forward, something like that. Sorry for subjecting you to that. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Okay, so that's a recitatif. Um, yeah, Tony Morrison wrote a short story called Recitatif. What is it about? I don't know. Is it good? I don't know. We're going to find out. That's a uh, tune in next week on the Brothers F to find out. <laughs> <laughs>